could become a much bigger problem. The Time reports two in three people in a poll think the NHS offers a bad service as it launches its own year-long inquiry into the future of health and social care in the UK. Senseless violence headlines the Metro as it writes on the Metropolitan Police's appeal for information after a seven-year-old girl was shot and left with life-threatening injuries near Euston Station, London. Four other women and a girl were also injured in the attack at a church, it reports. Uh, Superintendent Jack Ronalds saying they were victims of a senseless act of violence. And finally, the Daily Express writes the countryside is under siege in a rush to build large housing estates on rural land. 400,000 homes having planning permission on greenfield sites, according to Campaign to Protect Rural England. Charity tells the paper it is simply immoral to needlessly destroy the countryside. So those are the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. A reminder of the two topics we shall be covering today. So the first is about the six-year-old who shot his own um, uh, teacher. And then uh, from age 15 onwards, we shall talk about the misuse of ambulance service. We shall now take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue with the discussion on the headlines appearing in newspapers today. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. He claimed to be that lost one, awaited by all major fates of the world. He claimed to be that Krishna that Hindus were waiting so long for. He claimed to be that Buddha about whose coming the previous Buddha had prophesied. He was that Jesus son of Mary, awaited by both Christians and Muslims alike. He said he was the great reformer predicted by Guru Baba Nanak as well as the second coming of Zoroaster. He said that his mission was to bring all mankind to the realization that there is a God. He sought to bring about revolutions inside people so that they would fulfill the rights of each other as well as fulfill the rights of God. Now, just who was he? He was the Messiah of mankind, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Ghadian, and he was not a liar. 1400 years ago, the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of God be upon him, claimed that the promised Messiah of all faiths would appear to the east of Damascus. It is recorded in writing that around 100 years ago, this Messiah, sitting in an unknown, undeveloped Indian village, which lay on the same latitude to the east of Damascus no less, received the following revelation in the Arabic language, Bala Dimashq, meaning destruction in Damascus. He prophesied the First and Second World Wars, and he also predicted that a great war would start from here. It is no secret that the Syrian civil war is the biggest crisis of our time. A conservative estimate states that over half of a million people have been killed since the Syrian civil war started in 2011. However, the number is sure to be significantly higher. 
Similarly, it is estimated that 11 million Syrians have fled the country since the war began. The pre-war population has been estimated to be 22 million. With different factions on the ground, including American, Russian, and Syrian government troops, Syrian rebels, and ISIS, this has become an international arena of death, a de facto playground for world war. Although world war and the crisis in Syria are signs of his truthfulness, the promised Messiah abhorred bloodshed and violence, and instead claimed that he had come to end religious wars. He said that he loved mankind with the same love that a mother loves her child, nay, even more so. What mother would not sacrifice her own peace and well-being for the sake of her child? So, one can only imagine how much the promised Messiah loved mankind. An expression of his love are his timeless words which he desired to be a means of salvation for those he loved, that is, all of humanity. It is a fire, but all those shall be saved from that fire who love God, the doer of wonders. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the breakfast show from uh, the London studios of uh, Voice of Islam. We're talking about uh, the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. Um, Imam Usman, um, anything that caught your eye this morning? Uh, yeah, one specific thing is the weather. So um, it's uh, maybe some of right. some of us are feeling already that it's getting slightly colder, and uh, that might be because the temperatures are dropping uh, down to minus four, even minus five mm. uh, tonight or uh, to tomorrow night as well. So it's getting very cold. So um, just a warning for everyone to uh, you know dress up warm. Uh, it was uh, another one of those seasons where yeah. the weather changes a little bit. I think it's those few little Celsius degrees which can uh, make the difference and can get a lot of people sick. Absolutely. We we yeah. did have a cold wave um, in um, uh, in the middle of December, so it looks like we're mm. you know again sort of in the middle of something like that again. I think that was kind of a warning. Yeah. <laughs> so we prepare prepare for this winter. A lot of people, uh, including myself, we um, uh, I I prepared like a 
some things for the car. Right. So there was some issues with my car as well, you know, sure. with the, with the yeah. ventilation, with the heating, and then in that venter I felt it, and I, I got it fixed very yeah, exactly, very quickly. Yeah. So hopefully I won't have an issue in the excellent. If and it hopefully, gets cold. Well, absolutely, and and hopefully you know some other people can take your advice and uh, and do the same before it gets even worse. Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, something that really I thought was interesting uh, uh, this morning was go- was um, carried by the Guardian. Uh, and it is about um, call for um, a call for new taxes on super rich uh, after what um, the Guardian describes that, uh, as one percent pocket one um, percent of the population pockets two thirds of all new wealth that has been created since uh, the COVID pandemic hit, and uh, that's about twenty six trillion dollars. So Oxfam, um, this story is carried by uh, or written by Larry Elliott, um, who is the economics editor of The Guardian newspaper. And um, uh, it says it talks about Oxfam uh, calling for immediate action to tackle a post-COVID widening in global inequality after revealing that almost two thirds of the new wealth amassed since the start of the pandemic has gone to the richest one percent of the population. Um, this report um, coincides with the annual gathering of the global elite at global at the World Economic Forum in Davos. The charity said the best of had pocketed twenty six trillion dollars or twenty one trillion pounds in new wealth up to the end of twenty twenty one. That that's during COVID only. That represented sixty three percent of the total new wealth. Uh, with the rest going to the remaining ninety nine percent of the people. Oxfam said for the first time in a quarter of a century, the rise in extreme wealth was being accompanied by an increase in extreme poverty and called for new taxes to be levied on the super rich. Policies introduced to combat the economic impact of COVID-19, such as cuts in interest rates and the money creation process known as quantitative easing, boosted the value of property and shares, which tend to be owned by richer people. The report said that for every $1 of new global wealth earned by a person in the bottom 90% in the past two years, each billionaire gained roughly $1.7 million. God, just let me repeat that. The, according to this report uh, carried by, the, by Oxfam, uh, for every $1 of new global wealth earned by a person in the bottom 90% in the past two years, each billionaire actually gained $1.7 million. I mean, just just imagine, uh, Imam Manand, the, the disparity here. That is shocking. Exactly. That's the word. Absolutely. It's just shocking. And, and despite small falls in 2022, the combined fortune of billionaires had increased by $2.7 billion a day. So <laughs> let me repeat that uh, statistic again. <laughs> the combined fortunes of billionaires um, during the COVID time had increased by $2.7 billion a day. Pandemic gains came after a decade when both the number and wealth of billionaires had doubled. So uh, according to Danny um, uh, Shriskan Dajara, the chief executive of Oxfam GB, the current economic reality is an affront to basic human values. Extreme poverty is increasing for the first time in 25 years and close to a billion people are going hungry. But for billionaires, every day is a bonanza. 
Multiple crises have pushed millions to the brink while our leaders fail to grasp the nettle. Governments must stop acting for the vested interests of the few. How can we accept a system where the poorest people in many countries pay much higher tax rates than the super-rich? Governments must introduce higher taxes on the super-rich now, according to Oxfam. Oxfam also said that extreme concentrations of wealth led to weaker growth, corrupted politics, and the media corroded democracy and led to political polarization. The super-rich were key contributors to the climate crisis. The charity added with a billionaire emitting a million times more carbon than an average person. Again, let me repeat that as well. The the super-rich, according to Oxfam, were key contributors to the climate crisis uh, and a billionaire, according to Oxfam, emitted a million times more carbon than an average person. They were also twice as likely to invest in polluting industries compared to the average investor. So, um, with that rather somber start uh, to the morning, um, uh, let us uh, close the the news and current affairs uh, segment of uh, this show. And after this break, we will come back and talk about the first segment, which is about the six-year-old who shot... Uh, the teacher in Virginia, USA. Peace be upon you. I'd like to talk about something that I think is quite common, that being feelings of emptiness or a sense of disconnection that doesn't necessarily fall into the medical definition of depression or other pathologies. Although personally, I do think it can be related to conditions like that quite intimately for some people. A lot of people feel an underlying sense of disconnection, which can manifest in many different ways. Feelings of emptiness or loneliness even when we aren't alone. A terrible inability to be alone with our own thoughts. An overwhelming fear of death or feelings of nihilism. This feeling of disconnection has been attributed to a whole myriad of things. The breakdown of the typical nuclear family. Isolation from nature and each other. And even growing economic inequality. And while I think all of these things might contribute to or exacerbate the situation, my own personal opinion is that the causative reason for our feeling of disconnection is that we've abandoned a key part of what makes us human our spirituality, our practices of prayer and contemplation, and an understanding that there is a reality that is not accessible to our material, everyday senses, that can only be accessed through spiritual practices, but are nevertheless as essential to us as our physical food is to our bodies. After all, the common thread that links immersion in nature or connection with other people is an attempt to fulfill the need to unify ourselves, or at least to feel intimately connected with something greater, something that is transcendent, essential, unchanging, beautiful, nourishing. Almost every human culture of the past seemed to understand this to some degree or another. So it's actually quite remarkable that our now global culture has by and large abandoned any notion of these ideas or practices as valid. Historically, there are a lot of reasons for this that are maybe for another day. But I will say that we're now feeling the negative consequences of the attitude that stems from dismissive, closed-minded materialism. A lot of people attempt to medicate their internal sense of disconnection with anything that will placate their inner disquiet anything that can partially replicate the feeling of connection for a short period of time. Such measures often include avoiding being alone, using work, friendships, relationships, sex or even drugs as a kind of stopgap to fill that void. In my personal opinion, while these things might work in the short term, they don't get to the root of the problem. And this means that all of these activities are driven by a need to be made whole, instead of out of a choice to add to an internal state that already feels whole. When the stopgap measures, for whatever reason, are no longer available, the feeling of disconnection returns, often worse than before. So I want to be very clear about what I believe and have experienced is the root cause of all this and what is the attendant cure. In my opinion and personal experience, 
The ultimate root cause of this is the elimination of spirituality and spiritual practices, especially regular prayer, from human life. The function of prayer is to disconnect from the continuous external stimulus that we receive for a brief time, and to attempt to connect ourselves with the higher power, God or Allah. Indeed, to my mind, the mere fact that human beings feel such constant yet varied inner discomfort when we abandon this practice is proof enough that it's something many are in need of. Some of you watching now will agree or have had similar experiences yourselves. Others are going to be more skeptical. To those who ask specifically how one should pray, the answer is that prayer ultimately is varied and personal. But all effective prayer has, throughout human history, been noted to have some common traits. Namely, that it is addressed directly to God, and not through any intermediary, that it is heartfelt as much as is possible, and that it's regular. On this point, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, wrote, He who supplicates with the sincerity of his soul is never truly frustrated. That prosperity which cannot be achieved through riches and authority and health, but which is in the hand of God, and he bestows it in whatever shape he wills, is bestowed through perfect prayer. I'm personally confident that anyone, no matter their past, who engages in this practice persistently, say on a daily basis, even for a few minutes, and keeps an open heart and mind, will find that their internal state and their experience of living changes dramatically for the better. The feelings of disconnection and internal isolation that they may have felt previously morph into the opposite, feelings of peace, harmony, connectedness. To those who are skeptical, or those who are agnostic, I would simply remind them that a truly rational skeptic puts even those ideas and theories that they are most skeptical about to a deliberate and honest test, and that if the purported benefits of a practice are truly that extraordinary, then that at least is evidently worth trying. You may be pleasantly surprised as to what you experience and find. In summary, I'd like to leave you with a few Quranic verses that crystallize what I've spoken about. And when my servants ask thee about me, say, I am near. I answer the prayer of the supplicant when he prays to me, so they should hearken to me and believe in me that they may follow the right way. Therefore remember me, and I will remember you, and be thankful to me, and do not be ungrateful to me, and seek help with patience and prayer, and this indeed is hard except for the humble in spirit. Aye, it is in the remembrance of Allah that hearts can find comfort. Peace be upon you. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi Welcome back to The Breakfast Show. Uh, we are going to start our first segment, which is uh, the Newport News. What happened? What happens to a six-year-old who shoots someone? So at this time, a six-year-old student allegedly shot his teacher with a handgun at a, at a Virginia elementary school in what police described as an intentional shooting. A six-year-old student who shot uh, his teacher in Virginia uh, in Virginia, uh, Virginia law prohibits charging a six-year-old child as an adult. So there's this uh, kind of dilemma with this, um, with the, with the police claiming it's an intentional shooting, but uh, you know the Virginia law saying that it is at, at at six years old, he is still considered a child. So we can't really charge him as like an adult. Um, it is possible the child's parents could face consequences. Authorities confirmed the gun was legally purchased by his mother and that the child took it from the family home. Virginia law prohibits charging a six-year-old child as an adult. The student could be charged in a juvenile court, but the minimum age for a juvenile prison sentence is 11. Uh, authorities did not say whether the child's parents would face charges or clarify how they uh, stored their gun. 
So this is the story, um, which is very, uh, again, very shocking and very, uh, you know, d- disturbing. Um, you, you're stuck here because it's a six-year-old child. I mean, Obviously, he's very young. He's, he's, own, he's still developing. You know, he probably doesn't understand wrong and right. But on the other hand, there's, you have, he's shot a person, uh, police claiming intentionally. Exactly. What, what, what would be going through the mind? I mean, what, sort of, uh, what sort of surrounding uh, this, uh, this child might have? Or I mean, it's just, you're right, it's shocking. It's unbelievable. Lost for words, really. So research confirms that children raised in supportive, affectionate, and accepting homes are less likely to become deviant. Um, children rejected by parents are also amongst uh, those who are most likely to become delinquent. Studies also indicate that the child's disposition plays a role in this casual chain. A troublesome child or adolescent is more likely to be rejected by parents, which creates an escalating cycle that may lead to delinquency. Marital discord and conflict and child abuse correlate with uh, delinquency as well um, and issues with uh, children's well-being, mental well-being in particular. Uh, not all children, however, who grow up in uh, conflictive or violent homes uh, become delinquent. However, being exposed to conflict and violence does appear to increase the risk um, of having issues, uh, uh, mental health issues, especially among young, younger children. At this point, researchers have not determined what factors push some at-risk youth into delinquency. A child with uh, criminal par- parents faces a greater likelihood of becoming a delinquent uh, child than children with law-abiding parents. However, the influence appears not to be directly related to criminality, but rather to poor uh, supervision. Uh, Let's now uh, go straight to our first guest uh, for the show who um, researches uh, within child development and psychology and is working on a model for the education system as well, uh, Salim Wilson. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Hi, how are you doing? Very well. Um, Mr. Wilson, uh, my first question would be, would, what do you think would be going through a child's mind, a six-year-old who, who couldn't shoot uh, a teacher like that? Um, to be honest with you, I believe this is just an accident. This is a six-year-old. Six-year-olds are not capable of thinking about things like this. Mm. So this is more of an accident than it is like a psychological issue. Um, if if there is somewhere to look at, this is going to be the parents, right? The, the truth is that parents and teachers never really want to take the blame. They'll always say typical answers. This is just one case, right? There's so many things like this. This is a six-year-old. That's why it makes it stand out. But there's a lot of like adolescent shootings, especially in America, and there's a lot of violent acts that are um, committed amongst like adolescents. And like I said, teachers never really want to take the blame, but and they always say the typical answers like, oh, it's the violent video games or the bad friends or something that shifts it away from them. Um, and Right now, my job actually is to research into a lot of different areas because the organization that I work for, uh, we believe in a better education system across the globe. And we really do believe that everything that is taught now is coming from a broken system. So we look into technology and psychology and everything and try to bring it together 
more importantly, to give parents and teachers a different perspective on education. So I will speak from an educational point of view, if that's okay with you. Sure. Uh, but even from an educational point of view and, uh, you know, from a, uh, from a family education point of view, I mean, you're absolutely right. This is... Uh, this is in the headlines because it's a six-year-old, and uh, well, it w- would probably still be in the headlines if, even if it was an adolescent. But um, the fact that uh, you know a, a six-year-old was able to bring a gun to school—do you think that alone doesn't raise alarm bells? I mean, <laughs> this is this is just again, this is a parent's fault, right? Hmm. Like, if we're just being honest, if if a child, a six-year-old, is able to bring a loaded gun into the school, hmm. then that if that doesn't speak to the negligence of the parents in the household, I don't know what does, right? I mean, if you if you have a six-year-old child and you're leaving your loaded gun around that in an accessible place, hmm. and this 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 just goes to show what the parents would have been thinking: either they're negligent, they don't care. Or they they don't pay enough attention to things like this, and I'm more afraid if they have other kids that are a little bit older, or how this would have played out, even if this didn't happen in the child's life. Hmm. So your your hunch, and at the moment, I, I guess we're all going on on a hunch, is that uh, it's not probably any psychological issues with the kid. It's it's just because uh, a gun no, was. No, no, no. Was available. I really don't believe so. No, I and, mean, and, like I've looked, at, that, I've looked at the reports. Right. Sorry, yeah. Go on. So, is that based on on your experience in the in the field that you know a six year old is too early to have psychological issues? Is that the basis of what you're saying? Yes. I mean, I've done research in this, and I've, I've been working with kids for for a long time as well. Um, if if there was some kind of a mental issue, it if if we're just trying to make this into a, something a little bit more realistic, right? Mm. Um, the way that I'm looking at it is from a negligence point of view, right? It, it's the it's the thing that makes the most logical sense because, like I said, I've looked at the reports mm. and they don't really know what happened. There's like there's no facts in there. Either they don't yeah. know, and usually when in reports like this, I mean the police has gone there. This is going to be a big story, so then the, the news would have gone there. They would have done their own research. And if they can't really come to a conclusion, then usually it's something based around negligence, right? Because you can't really put that into words or find facts for that. Or it will take a long time. They'd have to go into the household. They'd have to actually look at how the parents are. If they have any other kids, they'll, they'll monitor their behavior to figure out um, where it actually came from. This is why, since this is a recent story, there's nothing. So logically, it makes sense to me that this this is not going to be coming from a this kind of a, this kind of a place right so so essentially you know it, it comes back to parenting and I, and I guess before we uh, brought you on um, that's exactly what we're talking about that you know it's 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 really the parents responsibility um, to to make sure that um, number one I mean that, that their basic um, uh, basic security of um, of weapons in in place in in the house, but even more so. Um, at at what stage, given your your area of research, do you think um, children a child at what sort of age would begin to exhibit signs of uh, delinquency, 
um, if there are problems at home, if there, if it's, a, for example, a broken home or if there are other problems at home? At what stage do you think a child would be able to, um, uh, would be, would actually be exhibiting the signs of a broken home? I mean, there's varying research on this matter, and um, even in the field, there's a lot of contradicting points because a child's brain is still developing, mm. right? Mm. And there can be many, many factors that can go into play when it comes to like um, signs of delinquency or violent acts. They could, and to be honest, one thing that they do talk about from the violent video games perspective and like kids seeing violence because it's so readily available now, right? Um, we don't live in the 90s anymore, right? Uh, if a kid wants to go out and find information, he can, right? Um, so, from my own research um, and from my personal opinion as well, I think that from the ages of seven upwards all the way to your your late 20s, you can exhibit anything like that. You can see if the kid is coming from a violent home. They, they could be introverted. They could... Um, the way that they respond to situations, you would be able to see. But this is something that, again, like uh, you mentioned as well, that parents and teachers have to be educated on, right? This is not this is not something that that can just uh, come into reality. Like uh, this, a kid can show violent nature early on, but then later on becomes to be someone very very peaceful, right? There's, there's no there's no accurate way to answer this. Uh, yeah, Wilson, you're right. Um, but what do you think? Which what steps can uh, the parents uh, take, or what steps should be taken for the parents to be educated about this uh, this violence? I and think I think firstly, it's very important for parents to have a certain perspective, right? And um, like I was saying earlier, that the teachers and parents never really want to take the blame, you know, when things like this happen. Mm -hmm. And it's most likely because it's sickening as a parent to know that this is a result of their lack of attention or education, you know. So, I mean, one of the most um, common things that can unfortunately be one of the biggest um, factors in cases like high school shootings is that um, the way parents deal with taboos, right? A child should feel comfortable coming to their parent, especially in an adolescent age, to be able to talk about anything. And now, it's in certain households, and most of the time you can see as well in, in places like this, uh, where there are adolescent shootings, you look at their household, the children don't really have that well of a connection with their parents. Right? Mm -hmm. And a child should feel comfortable coming to their parents at that age and should be able to talk about anything and instead of getting angry and shutting the kid down or trying to judge them or give them their own worldview, they should sit down with the kid without judgment they should hear him out um, teachers as well this is not just parents teachers as well should be able to do this and then to it's to understand why the kid is actually asking the question in the first place to implore and to to try and deduct uh, and then calmly explain to them multiple perspectives on the subject, not just their own or something that they've heard somewhere or what they believe is right or what, what their parents taught them or what they learned growing up. 
but understanding where the world is and trying to give them different perspectives on it. Um, and this, of course, means that the parents themselves have to know a lot about the things and keep up with the world. Because telling the kid, no, this is bad, and getting angry is going to have the reverse effect, right? Parents really want, come from the, a good place because they want to protect their kid. And the only way they know of protecting them is from what they've learned throughout their own life, right? But yeah. the issue is when a kid is asking a question like that, right, and you're telling, you're shutting the kid down, you're basically telling him, it's okay, you can go for look for that information somewhere else. Yeah, right. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's usually also the lack of knowledge of the parents who don't know how oh, to yeah, deal definitely. with this situation. Like if a kid oh, asks yeah, you a, a very weird question, you know, where you just straightforwardly, oh, why do we have to do this? Or why do I have to listen to you, for example? You, you can't just answer because I'm your father or I'm your parent. You, yeah, need, yeah, to, yeah, you this, need to yeah. educate them and make them understand, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. I mean, I think a good way for parents to implement something like this is um, first to build that trust, right? I mean, like, I understand right now we live in a world that moves fast, there's 95 and mm. you have a lot of these things and you don't want to keep up with everything and, like, your kid is going too fast and technology is improving. But there's something that every parent can do and that is to be able to ask yourself a question, right? And... You have to sit down and you have to, with yourself and you have to be like, will my child feel comfortable enough coming to me and asking me things like, uh, I don't know, uh, mom, dad, I want to do drugs. Or I'm lonely, everyone has friends and I don't. Or I don't know, everyone's got a girlfriend and there's all these things going on and I don't. And it's making me feel upset. Or these kids are bullying me and I wish they were dead. Can you give me a gun so I can go and kill them? Right? Mm. It's just big questions like that. Like, that is going to go through the child's head. It's, it's, if, if, if the situation outside for the child is bad enough, right, there's going to be a lot of things going through that child's head. And if, the, if they can't come to the parent, then they're going to find it somewhere else, right? And that parents have absolutely zero control over. They could find that information outside from other people, if they're social, um, at the best case. If they're not, they're going to go on the internet and they're going to try to find that information online. And if they don't like what they see, mm. they're going to find people or kids, other kids that have the same mentality who share their opinion about the thing and then they will absorb that. Which, by the way, also comes from the same broken system that the child's being raised in. Right? So then yeah. you can see a pattern kind of emerging. I mean, um, this is just one thing that happened again with a six-year-old, but if we look at adolescent uh, teenage especially shootings in schools and things like this you can see like some of them will go online or it, it's it's always something to do with loneliness or some form of hatred right yeah definitely and yeah and they, there's forums online you can go there's forums online where these like teenagers they get together and they they they're like they um, they don't feel like they're enough to get a girlfriend or, or people in, in school make them feel bad and um they think that it would be just to just kill them hmm. because they feel like they deserve better because of whatever reason. That's another long conversation for another time. But usually if the child is not feeling safe outside or the teenager is not feeling safe outside and he is not getting what he wants socially, he will start to be more and more introverted. He will 
uh, devolve more into like shows and films and stories and start to live more through his head, right? And maybe even start to glorify himself, hmm. right? And so it's so important for parents to be able to ask that question to themselves. If you don't feel comfortable, if you, if, if you ask yourself that question and you, you, you think that your child can't come and ask you things like that, then you're doing something wrong. Absolutely. Um, the first thought is that, you know, it's the parents' fault. But uh, my question is how much? Um, like, obviously the child has some, has taken some initiative on his own as well. So what do you think, um, even in this report, like you mentioned as well, they haven't given any facts, you know, usually they, they, there's, there's a report that, oh, this 10-year-old child uh, shot someone because of hate or because of bullying or because of um, misunderstanding, whatever reason. There's, there's no such, any reason mentioned here. Rather, it talks about the laws and, you know, the, the parents might get consequences. So what do you think has caused uh, this child to do this and how much is the child responsible here? I mean, in this story, like I, like I said to you, it's a six-year-old. And right now, because I don't really have any facts to look at to be able to come to my own conclusion, this is why I said this is more like an accident to me right now. Um, it's a six-year-old, right? Six-year-old is not capable of thinking or even formulating something like this. And if you're asking me how much of this is the parents' fault, 100%. Right, mm -hmm. and the teachers as well. If they, no matter what, especially because this is a six-year-old, especially because this is a six-year-old, is not the kid is not there. He's he's able to think for himself, and he's meticulously planning, and or something happened, and he got the wrong. It's it's the parents and the teachers' responsibility to be there and to be present. You don't have to be a psychologist to be able to see signs like this, mm -hmm. right? It's a six-year-old. So, yes, if, if, if we're talking about blame here, then yes, I think parents are definitely to blame a lot. And not just in this case, uh, in, in, like I said, in a lot of cases like this, in, in school shootings and things like that, yes, the child can make his own decisions, but it's the parents' responsibility. Right now, you're raising the next generation of mankind. There's no bigger responsibility than that. Yes, it's a great gift to have, but it's a really, really big responsibility as well, right? And I think mm. teachers especially, like I've spoken to a lot of teachers as well, they really undermine that responsibility and they don't really understand. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a nine to five to them, right? Teachers come, they're like, yes, I'm going to work and yeah, I'm going to go there. It's like plumbing. It's, it, it, the responsibility that's in their hands and the gravity of it, they don't really, they don't really, they don't really have it inside them, right? So if you do, did really understand that responsibility and you really were that passionate about raising the next generation, these kind of things would not happen because you would look at things, you would go out and understand what's going on in the world. You would look at child psychology. You would you would not need to, to talk to specialists about this. Mm -hmm. See what I'm saying? Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's, that's my, my opinion. Excellent. Thank you very much, uh, Salem Wilson, for joining us. Um, uh, and and sharing your thoughts, you're right. This is a six-year-old, and uh, yeah, it's actually too early as well for uh, for for any of us to to draw any conclusions. But uh, this is uh, definitely something which is absolutely shocking, and and I fully agree with you that I think yeah, uh, 
parents have to uh, carry the bulk of the blame here because uh, at the end of the day, how did a six-year-old uh, was able to access the gun and then carry the gun all the way to school? Thank you very much, Salim. Um, really interesting to talk to you. Thank you for joining us this morning and have a great day and week ahead. Thank you as well. Thank you. Thanks very much, Bhavai. So that was uh, Salim Wilson, who is an activist researcher within child development and psychology working. Uh, he's currently working on a model for ed- the education system as well. Uh, we are coming up to the 8 o'clock news, um, so we will take a break now. Uh, and when we come back, we will discuss um, uh, the Islamic um, perspective of uh, upbringing or of children, the right upbringing uh, of children and the vital role parents play in the raising uh, of the children. So more coming up on this topic right after these messages and the news break. of Islam Radio. He claimed to be that lost one, awaited by all major fates of the world. He claimed to be that Krishna that Hindus were waiting so long for. He claimed to be that Buddha about whose coming the previous Buddha had prophesied. He was that Jesus son of Mary, awaited by both Christians and Muslims alike. He said he was the great reformer predicted by Guru Baba Nanak as well as the second coming of Zoroaster. He said that his mission was to bring all mankind to the realization that there is a God. He sought to bring about revolutions inside people so that they would fulfill the rights of each other as well as fulfill the rights of God. Now, just who was he? He was the Messiah of mankind. Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Ghadian, and he was not a liar. 1400 years ago, the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of God be upon him, claimed that the promised Messiah of all faiths would appear to the east of Damascus. It is recorded in writing that around 100 years ago, this Messiah, sitting in an unknown, undeveloped Indian village, which lay on the same latitude to the east of Damascus, no less, received the following revelation in the Arabic language, Bala Dimash, meaning destruction in Damascus. He prophesied the First and Second World Wars, and he also predicted that a great war would start from here. 
It is no secret that the Syrian civil war is the biggest crisis of our time. A conservative estimate states that over half of a million people have been killed since the Syrian civil war started in 2011. However, the number is sure to be significantly higher. Similarly, it is estimated that 11 million Syrians have fled the country since the war began. The pre-war population has been estimated to be 22 million. With different factions on the ground, including American, Russian, and Syrian government troops, Syrian rebels, and ISIS, this has become an international arena of death, a de facto playground for world war. Although world war and the crisis in Syria are signs of his truthfulness, the promised Messiah abhorred bloodshed and violence and instead claimed that he had come to end religious wars. He said that he loved mankind with the same love that a mother loves her child, nay, even more so. What mother would not sacrifice her own peace and well-being for the sake of her child? So, one can only imagine how much the promised Messiah loved mankind. An expression of his love are his timeless words which he desired to be a means of salvation for those he loved, that is, all of humanity. It is a fire, but all those shall be saved from that fire who love God, the doer of wonders. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome back to The Breakfast Show. Uh, we were just talking about uh, this uh, shocking news about six-year-old shooting his teacher. Um, and we have spoken to our um, expert here, Salim Wilson, as well. Um, now we are going to move on to, um, to look at some of the Islamic perspective about moral training and... Um, about children. So uh, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza, as a Muslim, the second caliph of um, the Promised Messiah, he has actually written some notes, uh, some kind of bullet points about uh, children's trainings. Uh, so he mentions that as soon as a child is born, the first step towards its education is to proclaim the Azan into his ears. So this is very important from a, a Islamic point of view because the Azan contains the, the, the essence of Islam which is the, uh, the proclamation of uh, God Almighty's unity and that uh, the Holy Prophet Muhammad 
peace be upon him, is his messenger. And uh, His Holiness mentions that I need not elaborate this point further as I have already dealt with this in the course of the speech. You know, this is very common. Um, secondly, he mentions that a child should be kept neat and tidy. So this is a very, very fine and um, very, you know, incited point. Uh, he says that should be uh, this should be properly cleaned after stools. Some of you might say that this particular chore uh, belongs to the mother. This is true, but it is equally true that the mother will perform it properly only if the father is properly oriented in this regard. Um, <clears throat> so during a, um, sorry, so as was mentioning, obviously the father's role in this as well. Some other some other qualities a child needs to be taught is punctuality, self control, good health, cooperation. Um, so these are the things which which have to start being taught to the child very early on. Um, otherwise, as uh, our um, Salim Wilson, Mrs. Wilson also mentioned, is that the parents um, will become neglect, and this will cause the child to you know uh, misbehave or talk back. Uh, if the child is not, it has to be controlled in some manner. It might seem like. Um, you know, in, the, in today's age, especially, there's this notion of uh, freedom and freedom of speech and freedom of act. But if you let your children act freely, completely freely, you know, they, they are not capable of understanding the, the world right now. They need someone to guide them. So at this point, the child, uh, he has to be controlled. He has to be taught that this is wrong and you cannot do it. Uh, if he says that I want to go out and play, in essence, there's nothing wrong with it. But the parent knows that if this child goes goes out to play, he will play with these kinds of people, and those children will cause him to, you know, go into the wrong path. So the the parents have no doubt the most important role in the child's life, and because they have this responsibility, I think they should be able to uh, have that uh, authority as well to, you know, school them to uh, maybe be harsh with them. And in my opinion, the, the authorities, um, the government, for example, who intervene with with uh, children and pa parents and children between them, uh, yes, there is a point where it goes too far. For example, child abuse and these kind of cases. But on uh, on most of the cases, the, the the child has too much power. The child, if he's if he's uh, told off, if he's uh, harshly treated. He can just, you know, threaten the parents. I'll call the police, and the parents obviously will get scared because the police has so much power. They can take away the child. Even though I think the police needs to understand that schooling that child at that moment is more crucial than giving him that freedom. Um, otherwise, things like these, like school shootings, six-year-old child shooting someone, because I I, I have no other explanation uh, other than that the parents were very neglectful and did not. Um, you know, um, uh, train that child properly. Um, apart from that, a, a child should be helped to form the habit of relieving nature at regular hours. So, Hazur mentions that this is a very help is very helpful for its health, but a greater benefit is that its limbs come to acquire a sense of punctuality. Um, so, again, if you have a little baby, you wouldn't expect him to, you know. Uh, um, release or the, the answer to the call of nature on certain times but 
um, training your child to do this very early on, maybe not when he's a, is a newborn, but very early, as soon as possible, this will cause him to um, build up a, a sense of punctuality in, it, in, in a natural sense. There's some people who can't, who can't hold their um, pee or when they need to go to the toilet because they, they don't have the habit. Some people don't have the habit to eat on time. Some people don't have the habit to um, just generally they're not punctual or they're very you know lazy. So these habits, this is what starts very, very early on. Um, other than that, a child should be allowed to acquire self-confidence as a matter of habit as well. For instance, if it wants to have an object, which it has just seen, it should be told that it would be, that would get it at, at a certain time. Hiding the object is no solution, for it will imitate and try to hide things which will breed the habit of stealing. So you probably, like everyone who has children has faced this, that a child is playing with something and uh, it just does not want to stop, maybe a toy or or maybe it takes, takes the parent's phone uh, and they will hide it. Like oh, the phone is gone, or I don't know where the phone is. It's lost. And uh, as His Holiness, as a Muslim, he's mentioning that this is not a solution. This is just a temporary um, way out for the parent. Hmm. It's it's the parent's um, laziness, right here. Hmm. I will hide this. I will tell the child that the phone is gone, or the uh, let's say he's watching a TV show that the TV stopped working and you think that the child doesn't notice but after some t- some time if you keep doing this the child will start imitating you and he will start doing the same things so the the point here is that everything um, related to the children every habit they have it starts off very early and it starts off with the parents mm. so you very it's very common you know the child will imitate the parents and you see similarities between parents and children. And if you have cases like these school shootings, at this age, at six years old, the the the, the influence of the parents is even more, um, you know, um, apparent here. Absolutely. Uh, the, these parents must, I'm sorry to say this, but they must be like very, very bad at parenting mm. if this is happening. Mm. Obviously, mistakes can happen. Mm. But a child taking a gun, going to mm. school, shooting... Um, we don't have the facts yet that what was the cause of it, what was the reasoning of the child, but uh, just the mere fact that he did this or he the story came out is already very, very uh, shocking. Absolutely, and I think one thing that uh, the point that you um, you were making or you were um, uh, mentioning uh, from the second caliph, Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmed. Second Caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community. I mean, the detail that he's actually gone into, you know, talking about keeping the child clean, building early habits, um, mm. uh, making sure that um, uh, the child is is looked after. So, you know, there are all sorts of things that go into a lot of detail. So, I I think bring bring you back to the point that how imp- how important the early years of every child are, and therefore how important it is for parents to be close to their children. You know, these days mm-hmm. when Definitely. both parents are working um, and, um, uh, you know, a lot of mothers just take maternity leave for a year, um, year and a half max, and then they go back to work. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can just imagine what, how much uh, of that, the detail that you've mentioned, they will be able, the nanny will not, will not care. The nanny will not care to keep the child clean or to inculcate all the good habits in the child. But it's um, it's really, as you say, it's, it's the parent's responsibility and therefore so important for uh, 
for parents to be present for their for their children really yeah definitely but there's so many um so much detail in this this is this is the book uh, of his holiness the way of the seekers mm-hmm. so if anyone is does need wants to learn something you know it's, it's about a moral training of children they should go this about around page 50 this is where it starts and uh, there's so many little points which you never think of um for example another one is that a child should not be allowed to choose his own friends hmm. sounds a bit harsh isn't it hmm. but if you think about it logically that this choice should be made by the parents they should choose well behaved children as associates for their children um if you if children go and play with bad children of they course, will become bad massive influence okay if yes. you maybe if you take that step and little bit enforce your authority mm. and force them to be friends with people who are good natured the right people mm. that might be one harsh step but you know mm. that, that's something you have to do uh to, to yourself you have to be strict at that point so the future of your child will become better yeah. stricter you can you know all you need to do i mean as as a parent i can like you know very safely say that it, you have to just guide the child towards Uh, mm. you know the right sort of environment and 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 the right sort of people and the right sort of company um it, it, without even needing to be to be strict about it because uh, you know especially at an early age you know when, once they are adults or uh, adolescents then obviously it becomes mm. very difficult all these things that you're talking about are are things that parents um can only do uh, right from the beginning right when the, when the children are very young and they are their, their minds are also um uh very young and and that's the time that parents uh can have the kind of influence that mm. can can um uh it, it can it can make sure that the children have the right company that they need yeah sometimes i've seen that this grandmothers or grandfathers they're always like the extra loving to the child yes, because obviously for them this is hmm. this is their child's child so yeah. they love them so much and they sometimes also um give them too much leave way you know mm. too much love which is which is good but it has to be in the in the right um, circumstances for example i have a little niece and uh, she's obviously like my my her grandmother loves her mm. and gives her sweets and lets mm. her do whatever she wants and then but my niece's mother she always gets annoyed that I, i'm trying to train her yeah and my mother is not let me do that she yeah. she's ruining my training sure um so obviously like this their grandparents they like they've been uh waiting for like a grandchild maybe a long time sure. so you can't blame them in that way yeah, you but, have to uh, strike the right balance i, I yeah. absolutely hear you uh, uh, but equally you know it uh, you know having these these lovely relationships uh within the family uh, you know grandparents uncles aunts they're so important I, I, mm. my belief is that every um every relationship has an influence on child and every relationship um is therefore very important and and if there is a <coughs> gap in any relationship for example if uh, the siblings don't get along well with each other or the um the children don't have a good relationship with their um with either the father or the mother or even the uncle i my belief is that you know it it leaves a gap somewhere in the personality hmm. which shows up at some point in your life that's uh, that's what i think and i think that's um uh, is what you were talking about earlier as well yeah another very interesting point we usually don't think about is that um uh, uh, as always mentions again that children should not be told tales of horror 
mm. you know, like horror stories or scary stories. Some people maybe they, they scare their children just to as as fun. Well, with these days, actually, unfortunately, there are there are cartoons which which have horrific characters. Yeah. So monsters and exactly monsters and, and 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 devils and whatnot. I mean, do 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 you really need to? You know, a child should be kept happy and mm. that. And so, yeah, absolutely. I. I Really, so this, really this basically right, like it brings out a the character of cowardice and uh, children will start getting scared very easily. Exactly, which Negative is which is yeah, this is very bad for like, rather you want your child to be brave. Mm. You know, you, you want to mm. tell them that you can't show them uh, something scary and say, "Oh, there's nothing there. Don't mm. worry," mm. because the, the child has a clean slate in his, in mm. his brain. Mm. So you need to understand they don't know if you call them if he does something wrong and you say, "Oh, you're so stupid." Mm. He doesn't know what stupid means, stayed, yeah, and he'll start exactly. thinking, "Oh, I'm stupid." Yeah, okay, yeah, so he absolutely. does it again. You you say, "Oh, you're so stupid," or "You're so annoying." Don't do that. You scream at him. He will he will think this is the normal behavior. This is what I am. So th- th- another point has been mentioned is that you should not tell your child that it's it's okay, bad. It, actually, it's on on the point that you uh, that you make, and uh, this is also mentioned by uh, by the second caliph Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad. May Allah uh, have mercy on his soul. Um, he's he's also said that do not curse a child, for when you curse, angels add, let it be like that, and like that it he becomes. Hmm. Incidentally, this also means that angels are responsible for the consequences of actions. When you tell a child it is bad, it draws an imaginary picture in in which it figures itself out as bad and and does in fact become bad. Yeah. So, you know, as a, as a, I think, I assume I'm not a parent yet, but. Uh, I assume that most people they don't think about these things very early on, and mm. uh, this this book, since I've read this uh, a few years back, I'm I, re- I already planned in my head that when if I have a child, awesome, this is the first I'm gonna try to apply every single point as much as possible, mm. because uh, obviously for us it has a special significance because his uh, his holiness our spiritual leader, our spiritual father, mm. our spiritual parent, and what he says is we we completely believe is. Right, um, guided by God. I mean, it all makes sense. It just, yeah, it's it, all obviously exactly. I mean, it, it just makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. Some uh, some other points that a, a child um, address a child politely and uh, courteously. For a child is a great mimic. If you address it rudely, it will return the compliment in kind. <laughs> mm. So yeah, if you speak to your child, all is you know annoyed and angry, mm-hmm. it will do the same thing. It will learn. It will mimic. And I think that's uh, that's that's very a common fact that children mm. mimic, you know. Mm. So, as you said, I mean, the, the child is born with a clean slate, mm. and he will really uh, become the person that you would actually um, uh, calling yeah. it to become. So, one thing for like smokers, for example, they, mm. to, I just get very surprised that a mother who has a po- newborn baby or something is smoking around that baby. Obviously, she even if she knows the harm. Cause to the baby, um, she's not comprehending it, or her father as well, because they might think it's okay because they smoke. Mm. Okay, an adult is a grown man or woman. They mm. have a the body is strong. Even if they smoke a few cigarettes, they can survive it. Obviously, mm. it's causing damage. But for children, for j- children this young, you know, they need to have a certain temperature of their milk. They mm. need to have the mm. certain temperature of the room and body. They need to be kept warm. So mm. There's so much care which has to be taken. And when you smoke around that child, 
it's going into the lungs it's causing immense damage oh, for the future which Passive you cannot smoking, comprehend yeah, absolutely 100% yeah so and not to mention the bad influence that uh, the bad example that you're creating anyways if you're smoking in front of your child yeah definitely oh, okay maybe some people think that smoking isn't bad you know, maybe in the western culture um really are there those people okay yeah they th- i think they th- they think it's just cool oh, you okay. can say it that way right. that, you know you just, yeah. it's just cool it's, it's okay mm-hmm. Um, whereas, okay, maybe they think drugs are bad, but they well, think smoking is okay. Yeah, I think I would more tend to think that, you know, uh, teenagers would think it's cool, but as a parent to think that smoking is cool and uh, <laughs> would be a bit of a, uh, would be unfortunate. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. But I think they started as teenagers probably. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, that's when you're. I don't know, uh, maybe you know more about it. Do you think people start smoking at like old ages? Is this something they start? Or is this something that's just. No, I, I, you're absolutely right. I think these uh, these habits are uh, picked up usually um, uh, when you're younger, uh, in your younger years, when you are adolescent, mm. and um, peer pressure has a lot to do. Yeah, definitely. With uh, with some of these habits, mm-hmm. you know, these you have you pick up these habits in school, in from your friends, uh, from your company, uh, even from the media. So yes, uh, unfortunately. Um, uh, some teenagers do think that it's uh, that it's cool, and 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 you know, then one step leads to another. You have, you start smoking, and then before you know it, you're in drugs. Yeah. So it's not just uh, little children; it's also teenagers, which can be influenced. And I think that's an ongoing process throughout your life. Even absolutely. even adults can get influenced into doing things. 100%, absolutely. Um, yeah, which so is why your company and your environment is so important um, throughout your life. It's it's, uh, mm, it's the people that uh, um, I read somewhere that um, uh, and and uh, you know it's, it's sort of um, always remained with me um, uh, and um, yeah it it went something like you become the average of the five people you spend most of your time with mm-hmm. so uh, the people that you surround yourself with. Uh, the people or the books or whatever your environment that is really forming your your identity so yeah you become the average of the five people you spend most of your time with so be very careful who those five people are yeah I think that's very true I think I have felt this because um, I I had some friends and they were really good friends you know very very like very open very helping if you go out to eat they always offer to pay you know that kind of force it you know how we do it, like yeah. many the nepas. I have I have yeah. to pay for you. Like don't worry. Yeah. So the I wasn't like that. I was very a little bit conservative. I wasn't like oh, I have to pay for you. I was like I'll pay for you. If he says no, no, I got this. I'll okay. Right. <laughs> but uh, some of my friends told me that you know this persistency that you you have to you know pay. You have to force that good uh, act on them a little bit. Has taught me this. So now I started doing this as well. That if if I go out to eat with someone or. I'll, uh, we go shopping or something. I I kind of try to force it. I know I will take the expenses. So it, it's true. This, these habits you pick up on your friends. Even Are you free for lunch time. today? Uh, <laughs> 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 this is only for friends. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Thank you. Well, right. Okay, so you've certainly put me in my place. Right? <laughs> no, no. Of course, uh, you can you can go right. for a, cool. for breakfast okay. actually, not lunch. Let's go for breakfast. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Right. So I think with that, uh, we can um, uh, we can close uh, this segment. Um, 
very interesting discussion on uh, on parenting uh, by Imam Usman Manan. Very um, uh, very useful tips from the second caliph of the MD Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmood Ahmed, um, which has always go uh, into very minute details and and the uh, the very basic psychology of children and uh, and humans. So if you haven't had a chance to, to listen to it, please do go into SoundCloud and uh, listen to the recording. Uh, we shall now take a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk about the ambulance service being misused. Um, this according to paramedics. He is the King of the Kings and indeed is the Master of the Day of Judgment. He is the Lord of all creation. The Master of the Day of Judgment is one who runs the affairs of the masses according to his will. Malik, Master, is one who has total possession of creation and has this possession without the help of any partnership and that this is not applicable to anyone but Allah. Unlike a Malik, King, from whom one seeks everything, the term Malik, Master, denotes that God is responsible for everything, including food, reward, and punishment. The rule of God is not like any kingship of this world. Rather, it has total ownership and control. God has expounded the good and the bad deeds to us and has given us free will in this world and has told us that He has the right to punish and that the decision to punish or forgive is with Him. The promised Messiah on whom be peace said, that the attribute of Master of the Day of Judgment demands that we turn to Him with extreme and utmost humility, sincerity, and meekness. Those who turn to Allah in the manner of a completely helpless and powerless person and do actually and genuinely believe in their utter incapacity as they submit, find beneficence, from this divine quality. Malik is a quality of deed that promotes and advocates a profusion of mercy and compassion. However, how can man imbibe this divine attribute on a human level? Adopting mastership means that man may do justice and may avoid evil. In this capacity, he also overlooks others' wrongs, either out of mercy, compassion, or forgiveness. These human qualities only come to the fore when one is in authority and possesses control over something. One's good moral qualities and courtesy only come into focus when one is given status. An awareness of the attribute of Malikiyat 
turns one heart tender with the awe of punishment and thus generates a true insight. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday the 16th of January 2023. Time is 8.35 a.m. And we're talking about, or we're going to, going to talk about the ambulance service being misused uh, and discuss a story carried by the BBC last week, actually. Um, so according to the BBC, the public is too quick to call uh, an ambulance for non-life-threatening situations says one pandemic and people will readily treat the service as a 24-hour anything and everything uh, instead of uh, ambulance uberlands often when people called 111 they are advised to make their own way to the hospital they call an ambulance instead according to this paramedic who's from the northeast of england um, as carried by the bbc the pandemic, uh, sorry, the paramedic also accuses the wider health and social care sector for applying the same mentality towards the ambulance service as the public. It has completely lost its identity as an emergency service. Ambulance crews are cons- constantly picking up the failings, shortcomings and workloads of elsewhere in the health and social care sector. Quite frankly, we're exhausted. We are at the end of everybody's flowchart. This has led to a chronic shortage of ambulances being available for those who really need one, according to this paramedic. There's a small chance we can save them, but only if we get uh, get there within minutes. But where are we? We're all either stuck at hospital or having our time wasted at a scene far away by someone who called 999 absolutely shocked that their course of antibiotics didn't fix their air infection within five hours of taking the first dose. So those are the kind of problems that uh, the ambulance crews uh, are actually facing on the ground. This paramedic believes the situation is not sustainable. Ambulance workers have become so chronically overworked and overstretched within this exponential demand that quite simply, they cannot cope. This paramedic said, we cannot carry on being the magic fix um, people think NHS is. About 20,000 ambulance workers um, were on strike uh, recently, but this paramedic in the Midlands was not among them. I took part in strike action in 1989, and I've had bad memories of how that left me financially, he said. However, they um, they do understand uh, why colleagues are taking industrial action. The worry for elderly people who cannot get back up after a fall and um, are left lying on the ground for hours. So that is what is uh, bringing some of them or brought some of them back um, onto the job or uh, not uh, go for industrial action in the first place. In a situation like this, the patient could be a category three priority, meaning it might be a long time before an ambulance reaches them and other calls will take priority. Ambulance emergency call categories are as follows. So number one is life-threatening. Examples are cardiac arrest or severe allergic reaction. Number two is emergency, which could be a stroke or major burns. Number three is urgent. 
examples would be wounds or abdominal pain. And then number four is non-urgent, which uh, examples are uh, diarrhea, vomiting, um, urinary infections, and such like. We leave you and we leave you, um, says the pandemic. The patient could get under pressures, um, could get pressure sores and blood clots from spending so long unable to move. Uh, this paramedic explains. If they need to use the bathroom, they will have no choice but to soil themselves, which makes the situation worse and is degrading, says the pandemic, and also worries about hypothermia because patients get cold and might be wet. I went to a call the other day that was 36 hours old. Another pandemic, uh, sorry, paramedic says some GPs misuse ambulances by doing things like booking one to collect patients who could have gone to hospital themselves or did not need to go at all. I've lost count of the number of these jobs I've done over the years when the patient could have made their own way to the hospital as we sit and chat in the back with no interventions or monitoring required, says this pandemic, who has more than 20 years of experience. This is a waste of money, puts pressure on hospitals and adds to the lengthy ambulance queues waiting outside ambulance and emergency services or any services imam uh Manan, your thoughts on this i mean yeah should people be taking nhs and ambulance service something as critical as that for granted uh yes people definitely take this for granted um however you also need to understand the other side like if me personally if my mother had let's say a toothache or she has a headache, and I would obviously be concerned, and I would reach to the highest, highest uh, um, kind of treatment I can maybe access. But wouldn't you then? Wouldn't it be your responsibility to take her to the hospital? <coughs> you know, if it's if it's something like a toothache, for example, rather than calling an ambulance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So there's this balance. Um, I was trying to say like more like a like a sudden pain. You yeah. know, some people have yeah. a pain, and they don't know where it's coming from. Things like this. Uh, I would be like, oh, sure, you know, yeah, you, you know, if you, a bit absolutely, nervous. I get you. So if you suspect that it might be a cardiac arrest situation or it yeah. might be a stroke situation mm. or something like that, so if you're suspecting that, then absolutely. So that's, uh, as I just explained, that's category one or category two, uh, according to the ambulance service. So that's life-threatening uh, or emergency service, and in in, in yeah. that scenario, I think you would be well within your rights to, to call. But uh, yeah, people calling up ambulances um, uh, service and saying that, you know, my antibiotics course is finished. Is that, uh, yeah, that is, is that valid? I mean, is that, is actually, that right? I don't know if you saw me, I had a, a, a kind of <laughs> smile at that point. That is obviously, I think this is shocking. This is, um, well, I think to the person who is uh, having the issue, who mm. has the ear infection, he's obviously, he obviously thinks like, I'm, mm. I'm the priority. Mm. Uh, yeah, and so what they did was not appropriate, was not correct. They should obviously, uh, maybe they don't know how antibiotics work, but they take you know a week or so to work. But uh, yes, uh, I'm, the point I'm trying to make is that people are concerned about themselves. Mm. So especially in time of when they they have pain or they have an issue with them or they have a any any reaction, for example. So at that point, people don't think about this, but. Uh, Overall, in general, this is um, the the ambulance should it should be used for emergencies. Exactly, because we don't have unlimited amount of ambulances. Absolutely. So I think yeah, there's a balance that needs to be struck as uh, struck as you said. So 
let's talk about from an Islamic perspective both things. So, number one, the responsibility of a state, an Islamic state. Mm. Uh, what responsibility um, uh, does Islam place on the state to provide the medical services, emergency services like ambulance services um, to its people? Mm-hmm. And then also look at the other side, which is that what is the responsibility of citizens in an Islamic state? Um, how responsible they need to be um, in terms of making sure that they're not using or, or abusing the service. Yes. So I think um, the, the, is, the Islamic system of everything, you know, of governance, of children, of everything is perfect. And the reason is because it just exactly what you are asking for. It, it puts that balance mm. into your life. Your life, the Islam is more about balance. It's, everything is about balance. Mm. Okay, but whether it's prayer, whether it's um, your worship or it's your work, Islam says that there's balance, and you have to keep that balance uh, because if you don't do it, you you will become a extremist in some sense. Mm. Some are extreme in in their religious views, some are extreme in their secular views, mm-hmm. and more like liberal. Mm. So you need to go to through the middle middle path. So in this case. Um, the government is responsible and it, sh- it needs to take that responsibility mm. to take care of its its subjects. Mm. The reason is all subjects can't, they're not equal. Mm. Okay, there might be some doctors, there might be some uh, nurses, some lawyers, but there's a, a, a large number of people in almost every country which are, um, which are not that educated, especially adults. They have children, mm. they're married, but... Th- they don't have a specialization in a field, for example. They're not very educated in uh, medicine or they're not very educated. In... So those cu- types of people, they they generally have less knowledge about the government or about the things around them. So uh, the government has to look out for everyone. Um, if you say, oh, you should have known that antibiotics will take a week, mm-hmm. so it's your fault you called the ambulance and mm-hmm. find them, for example, mm-hmm. that would be a bit too harsh as well. Mm-hmm. But... They need to be told that you need to, like, for example, they can read. You can read the label. You can read mm. how antibiotics mm. work. Mm. Or the doctor who gave you antibiotics, you should ask them about everything. Or the doctor should tell them, um, you know, in detail that if it doesn't go away in a few hours, don't worry. Mm. It will take some time. So uh, there, there's responsibility on both sides. Mm. And yes, the sub, the the the, the people, uh, the, the citizens, they can't take this for gr- uh, for granted either. Uh, but like I said, like in this situation, sometimes people don't think about this. And this is another thing what Islam teaches is to is to have that this kind of thinking, this critical thinking about others, even in in a time of difficulty. Mm. For example, the, um, there's a story about the Holy Prophet Sallallahu during Salaam. during uh, one of the wars. Um, he uh, there was some prisoners. Mm-hmm. There was there was no jails, you know. There was no prisons, so people were kept in houses or with, they were uh, they were assigned to people. Right. So one of the prisoners was um, was his uh, uncle. Mm. That was the very beginning of Islam. So one mm. of the prisoners was his uncle, and uh, because of the the, the restraints, the mm. the ties they mm. had on their hands, they were so tight that he the prisoners his uncle couldn't sleep mm. so he was he kept complaining and you know mm. he was uh, crying or he was like in in pain mm. so the holy prophet he um he was uh, it was hurting him because he was his relative was disturbed, yes. but at the same time he was thinking that if i leave i can't treat my uncle different than mm. other people mm. they're all prisoners yeah 
so um there was this this dilemma in his head and this kind of uh, um kind of pain as well for his uncle sure. so um the companions of the holy prophet they're very very you know um, they had a very deep uh vision as well they used to also track every move of very the holy prophet so yeah. they saw this this distress he had mm. so what they did is that they they manned up more so they increased the security mm. but they loosened all the prisoners right uh, handcuffs kind right. of right you know to to ease the pain of the holy prophet right, right. but so they kept that balance as well that you can't let that prisoner go sure but so what we'll do we'll we'll treat everyone fairly right we'll loosen everyone's restraints mm. and okay it'll it'll be more burden on us but yeah. we will take this which sure. we will do sure. so this kind of treatment even you know to war criminals nowadays mm. you like torture them you mm. this is once you are war criminal you, are, mm. you probably won't survive mm. but look at that treatment of that was like 1500 years ago absolutely yeah yeah so keeping that balance this is what islam is teaching mm. uh, which is you see everywhere in your life it's such a beautiful example there and 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 you know you're absolutely right you know we are 1500 years hence and just look at the treatment of prisoners for example um uh, in iraqi prisons uh, during the uh, the occupation um or in guantanamo bay just Just, mm-hmm. you know and and this is from you know from the most supposedly the most civilized time in the history of humankind the most <laughs> educated time the yeah. most informed time in the history of mankind and here we have these examples um uh, such as uh, you know these prisons going down away and what not and on the other hand islam set such a beautiful example 1500 years ago where mm-hmm. you know everybody was taken was being treated fairly um even though one of the prisoners was the uncle of the prophet himself so, yeah it reminds me you know in the in the beginning you mentioned um about the billionaires the top 1% yeah uh, another point came to my mind about about this um this balance system that uh, the tax which which we know as today the tax this this is something which is part of islam as well right um um it's called jizya at that time uh, yeah so it's called in, in islamic um, terminology it's called zakat right and uh, for non muslims it's called jizya right. which technically means tax yeah. so at that time mm. there there's a there's a injunction on the muslims to pay the zakat which is mm. the tax right and the reason for that zakat is which is a very small amount mm. you know in the uk how much is it, 20% Well, it well, depends on your income, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah but yeah. something like that. And zakat in in Islam is only, I don't know the exact, but it's, it's like one percent, probably 5%. even less. Yeah, yeah. Or so yeah. something like this. So it's a very small amount. The reason for that zakat is that everyone has to pay that zakat, hmm. and those who are not Muslim uh, in that uh, government, in the Muslim government, back at that time, they would pay jizya. So uh, that was a tax. Yeah. So some people refused to pay that. They're like, "We're not Muslims, so yeah. why do we have to pay to you?" And the the, the caliph or the leader at that time said that it's not because you're a Muslim is is not related to Islam in this sense, but it's because of the government. It's because of the security that was being provided to the non-Muslim population. Yes, yes. Um, um, at that time. Yeah. So the the, the government. Uh, the, the infrastructure of the government, the the security yeah. that the government provides. I mean, just like any other state now, yeah. uh, the government is responsible for the uh, uh, providing em- em- basic amenities and security mm. to all the population. Or like ambulances, for example. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that zakat system is used. 
to provide for the citizens by the government. However, the government is not like they don't have money growing on trees. Mm. The money comes from the people, right. which is spent again on people. Sure. But the 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 zakat system or this tax system in Islam is was introduced to keep the money flowing. Otherwise, if the top one percent keep that those billions, and there's ninety percent of people who can't afford many things, then that that is that's what hap- that that's what happens. That's what happens because of interest and because of the tax system. Obviously, if you're rich, you 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 know find ways to avoid taxes. Even though the rich should be paying the most taxes, they have the most money. They are the ones who can help the most. Right. So to keep that balance, again, you need to. Um, what you were reading bef- earlier about uh, increasing the tax for the rich, uh, I think I, got, I thought of this as a good idea as well. Um, increasing those taxes will help everything. You know, the NHS, the country. Uh, the economy, yes, it will take a bigger toll on the rich people, but uh, to be honest, they will not suffer that much because, you know, they they have luxuries, they have other things. But it's just, I think at this point, they have too much money. So the extra money, which they're just hoarding and keeping, um, that's what the tax system or the zakat system is trying to move around. It's trying to move around that money so you don't... You know, just hoarding money is, is no benefit to you, is no benefit to anyone else. So use the money to help the people, to help your country. Um, and you, you need to be able to do that sacrifice. Um, Absolutely. And uh, one correction, I mentioned uh, the um, uh, zakat uh, uh, payment is 1.5. It's actually 2.5% of all cash that, uh, uh, that, you, uh, that you have unused in a year. And then it's also levied on um, uh, on gold and uh, and silver as well. So it's it's a tax which is levied on wealth that um, has not been used, and the idea is to circulate wealth. So uh, so I thought that was important to make that point. And with mm-hmm. that, we come to um, the end of today's show. We've talked about uh, two things today. So we've talked about uh, the six-year-old child shooting uh, the teacher in America. Uh, some interesting discussion there and then we um, uh, in the latter part of the show talked about um, uh, the ambulance service being misused please do join us um, next Monday for another episode of uh, the breakfast show live here from the Southland Studios of Voice of Islam there will be another live breakfast show tomorrow so do join uh, for that the topics that uh, they will carry tomorrow will be about uh, new blood tests which can detect detect toxic proteins a year before Alzheimer's symptoms emerge and then study discovering um, triple immunotherapy combination as possible treatment for pancreatic uh, cancer and then also a study on the um, circadian clock of the fruit fly. So a lot of science, I believe, tomorrow. So do join us (laughs) tomorrow for uh, another episode of um, The Breakfast Show. Until next week, um, uh, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you for myself and from Usman Manan Sahib. Uh, and we look forward to chatting with you next Monday, inshallah, God willing. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Um, may you have uh, a lovely Monday and an excellent weekend ahead.